Good morning, everyone. It's amazing. When you're at the front and you start the gathering, um, it feels quite empty. And then the minute you look around after the worship, it's like everyone's here and it fills up. It's amazing. There's so many of us here. Um, it's great to be with you. Um, we're going to be finishing up our series of Jesus in the Psalms this morning. And we're going to be talking about Psalm 98, um, which I've called the message Built to Burst. Um, this is about church and not the Sunday roast after it. Um, <laughs> that was a really bad dad joke. I'm really sorry. Um, but yeah, um, I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture the scene. Um, it's 1686, and you're in a dusty old church in Southampton. And maybe, you know, there's some over um, concentrated squash being passed around and all of that and you're just getting into the singing and um, they're singing this psalm and um, no one's really joining in and in the back you see this little boy with his dad and he's there and he's going what on earth is going on why aren't they singing and you hear the whispering of this little boy and he's getting almost more animate as people are just sort of indifferent Maybe there's a slightly eccentric organist there who's really going for it. But it just seems like people just aren't listening or aren't knowing what they're singing. Well, you can open your eyes now. This is the story of how little Isaac Watts um, started his journey into being what, is, what we now call him, of, um, we call him the father of English hymnody. That's a word you don't say often, isn't it? But this is how it started. He was in church looking around, and he felt this kind of confusion. Um, and actually what he said, we've got a picture, I think, of Isaac coming up. There you go. I don't know if they wore their hair like that all the time or if it was a wig. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Someone can tell me afterwards. Um, but he, he said this, um, and we should have it on a slide coming up. Thank you. Um, and he, he didn't really pull his punches at all. Um, to see the dull indifference, the, ne the negligence and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. And his father was kind of, kind of quick because he said this later in his life. But actually, when he expressed the frustration to his dad, um, his dad, very tired of his complaints, turned around to him and said, OK, well, you go and write something better. And um, the very next week, uh, this is a true story, um, as an adolescent Isaac, so teenage Isaac, he's probably about 13, wrote his first hymn, Behold the Glories of the Lamb, which, of course, received an enthusiastic response. And he went over to write over 750 hymns. Um, we sing a few of them here. When I Survey, The Wondrous Cross. Is that a personal favorite of anyone's? I love that one. And um, probably the most sung Christmas anthem of all time, Joy to the World, which is what Psalm 98 is written about. And you imagine him sat in his dusty study, um, Writing these lyrics, joy to the earth, the saviour reigns, let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Um, just a quick plug, Christmas choir is coming up, you know, get involved with that. Um, but these, these words, these lyrics linked um, to the passage. Next slide. So here, we, we see in Psalm 98, verses 7 to 9, let the sea resound 
and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And I I, I don't think Isaac was particularly annoyed at everyone not really getting on with the singing of the Psalms. I think he was probably just confused. I think to him, he was like, there's something in me that needs to be shared and needs to spill over. And this is where this whole idea of bursting comes on the scene. But um, this this time was sort of post-Calvin, if you know about the Reformation. And um, he um, made worship almost very psalm rigorous. And because of that, Isaac was really heavily um, criticized. Uh, And some of the newspapers might actually looked a bit like this. Um, This is one of the headlines from that time. So, oh, go back. (laughs) There we go. Psalms abandoned for what's whims. Um, And then there was another one, which isn't on the screen, which said this. It said, Christian congregation... uh, Christian congregations have shut out divinely inspired psalms and taken in what's flights of fancy. Um, <laughs> it's pretty intense, isn't it? And you can imagine him. He's, there's almost like this battle going on between him and the establishment, um, even to the point that his father got arrested <laughs> by Anglicans. <laughs> and <laughs> twice. <laughs> it was really bad. They had this battle almost between them, of we should be singing psalms. And, and Isaac was saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, he said this. He said, they ought to be translated, talking about the psalms, in such a manner as we have reason to believe David would have composed them if he had lived in our day. And he wrote a book after that called Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. And that came in 1719. You know, for Isaac, worship just spilt out of him. To the point where he was in trouble a lot of the time. What was in him poured out into the world. And he couldn't help it. He was just full of the joy of the Lord. And each day he, he wanted to put almost like a fresh expression um, to, to that love that he felt. This psalm reflects that. Psalm 98. I think we've got the next slide, please. Rich? It reflects that. And particularly in these verses that I'm going to be focusing on today. So... All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. And I I like to think we've got this picture of a dam exploding or like something like that or a river overflowing. This outpouring of worship that's just uncontained. The Psalms, you know, are the most quoted book in the New Testament. And, but Psalm 98, um, this one that we're talking about, it's only quoted once um, throughout the New Testament, and it's in Luke. Um, do you guys know that Luke, um, another name for the Gospel of Luke, according to scholars, is the musical gospel? I think that's really cool. I've got this there. You can tell by the tickets it's a musical. But <laughs> it actually contains four songs. Um, the Song of Mary at the very start the song of Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon. It's, and you can almost imagine, if you were to think about it as a bit of a play, there's these four characters off to the side of the stage, sort of bursting with excitement to talk about Christ and to talk about what he's doing. They're waiting in the wings. Um, I've left the uh, little references on there for you to go and, and explore that um, when you get home. But this is the first song um, that I'm going to talk about, Mary's song. And 
it's the first instance of one of these songs here. And it is actually my favorite. And it's when Jesus was born. And after hearing the news that Mary's pregnant with him, Mary visits Elizabeth. And just after, she, she literally bursts into song. And this song isn't something that's pre-written. It's a song from her spirit. It's a song from her heart, her soul, or the other translation of her innermost being. And she just explodes with this worship. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And and my spirit, so that's what he's saying, my innermost being rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I'm just skipping a few verses. 54 says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, which is the direct quote from Psalm 98, verse 3. What I think is exciting about this is we have such a basis for spontaneous worship within the New Testament. Um, I think a lot of the time that those moments can get sort of like criticized or, you know, people will be saying, I'm not sure that's particularly of the spirit or whatever. Um, we're, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it's something that is told, is given for us to do throughout scripture. Um, it, it wasn't some form of like add-on from the 1990s when the, you know, the Toronto blessing poured out. It's been something that's happened since the beginning of time. It's been working its way since the beginning. See, worship, I think, cannot be contained to a song. Worship is a posture of response. You know, we participate in a a moment. Worship is is carrying on, even when we're not singing. Worship is carrying on in heaven. So actually, it's not we start the worship, it's we join the worship that's already happening. I think that's amazing. The sound of heaven, we participate in that. We're a small voice in the anthem of heaven. One incredible thing is the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Going right back to the start, just imagine that intimacy that Adam and Eve must have felt with God. They must have experienced with Jesus, walking with him in the cool of the day, We don't hear a lot about this in scripture, but they were created, you know, for this purpose of dwelling with him, of participating in his presence. I just think like every conversation must have just blown their minds and there was nothing really else, you know, (laughs) there yet. And they probably were just in awe of Christ talking to him. They were created for that purpose of being with him. We are creatures created for the purpose of enjoying God's presence. God created you just to be with him, for you to enjoy him, for us to be witnesses of his kindness, of his mercy, his beauty, his love. In fact, A.W. Tozer said this. Um, he's an incredible writer. If you're wanting to read a bit more about worship, Um, I'd really recommend um, his book. So this is directly from the purpose of a man. Um, Sorry, it's not a very, you know, 
gender helpful title, but it applies to everyone. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, and it sa- he says this, worship is the Christian's primary occupation. And he describes how we, we need to be restored because we've suffered almost a kind of spiritual amnesia and forgetting about what we're supposed to be doing with this, with this life what we're created for, of just enjoying the glory of God, being with him and bringing glory to him through our gifts. Um, I think it goes unsaid that worship isn't just about singing. I don't want to talk about that because I feel like it's getting a bit of a cliche. You all know that by now. Worship is just who we are. It's who we're created to be. And you know, for some people, it might be that sports is the way that you worship God. For others, it might be through um, business or something like that. Um, you know, we, we are created to bring glory to God and to enjoy his presence, to rediscover that garden afresh, the intimacy that Adam and Eve felt and the vulnerability with God. Christ enjoys our presence just as much as we enjoy his. Have you ever thought about it that way? When we are enjoying his presence, he sees his masterpiece, his work come to life. And he sees, it's almost like an inventor seeing his creation work and do serving the very purpose for which he made it. And it, I just sense God's joy in that. It fills him with joy. We were created for closeness. We were created for intimacy um, with God. A few years ago, um, I was doing some prisons ministry. So this is down in Dorset where we were before we were up in Worcester. And we saw the light and thought, you know, the Midlands is better than the sunny coast. <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> And um, we went in and visited um, a prison down on the south coast. And I went with this amazing guy who's called Brian. And Brian was, bless him, he's probably like just under five foot. Um, and he, he had this incredible choir. He's probably about, he's probably pushing 80 um, there. And we used to go in with probably about 20 or 30 people. And We'd, we'd go through, and go, he'd do the choir, I'd do the talk, and we'd just see what happens and see what the Holy Spirit did. Anyway, one time that we went in was around Christmas, and um, it, it really hit me. You, when, you, when you go and arrive in a prison, a lot of the time, it's almost like you have a reception area. Um, and then you go through, and there's almost like an airlock space where you, you get searched, and then you get through, and you eventually get into the chapel. Anyway, in this, in this reception area... Um, I looked at the floor and I spotted some tiny footprints um, that had been put out and they were stickers that had been put down through the airlock thing and then into, into the um, actual body of the prison. And I was wondering, what on earth are these, are these for, um, these stickers? And I, I sort of followed them back, the trail, um, to a display board in the prison. And on the, on the board it said, things I can say to my dad. And... I don't know, something in me just broke. That that was the relationship that some of these children had with their father. That they had to be told what to say. That there were these barriers that got in the way. That they had to follow these footsteps through an airlock into a prison, past the the dogs that were there, and eventually they got to the visiting area. And I just thought, wow, like... So often, like, my life can be that, like that with God. That I put so much stuff in the way that I try and 
almost um, that I try and make prayer this this thing where I'm like, what what should I say to my dad? What should I say to my father? Um, when he just wants us to be in his presence, he just wants us to enjoy that. And because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to endure a relationship where we're getting through barriers to go and see him, where we're almost um, fighting to meet with God, to hear his voice. He's here and he wants to speak to us today. And we worship from that place of intimacy. One of the common misconceptions that I see um, around worship is that we sort of worship our way into intimacy uh, with God. And, that, you know, that sort of happens by the third song in the set. And then we're there. We're, we're enjoying the presence of God in that one. When actually that's our starting place with worship. That's how we come to worship. You know, we sing that song, Boldly I Approach the Throne of God. He's done all the work for us to be able to go and enjoy his presence, to be able to go and meet with him there. And it's, it's not like we need to do anything to attain that. We don't have to sing a particular volume or sing some particular songs. You know, we, we, we come as people who are accepted by him, loved by him, that he wants to see, that he wants to enjoy. And we have that forever. The curtain's been torn into. There's nothing that separates us from the love of God. It's Christ's greatest miracle, and I think we forget that, that we can enjoy his presence, that we can be with him. The verse at the very start of the um, psalm that we um, get given is this, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And that word Lord is the is the Yahweh. Um, it's the name of God. Um, it just gets put as Lord, as the translation there. And for he has done marvelous things. So you could translate marvelous as miraculous. Or the other word is wonderful. Wonderful. For he has done wonderful things. I think wonderful is an amazing word um, that we don't use enough. Wonderful. It just it flows off the tongue. But that sense of wonder of going, wow, God, you're amazing. You're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, we have to restore that sense. God is doing so much in this world. Uh, it can be depressing when we look at the news, but God is restoring all things, making new all things, and he's doing so, so much. And we just get from this psalm this, a sense of what the psalmist is feeling of this overwhelming bursting worship that just flows out of him from his innermost being. He's just in awe. And I, I think of that image of, of Mary as well, you know, from that song we, we read before of her, of her just hearing the news of being pregnant with Jesus and just being absolutely overwhelmed, of being absolutely overcome by knowing who, who is working through her and what he's doing. The phrasing of a new song actually even doesn't refer to a brand new song. It doesn't mean the latest Hillsong worship. It, sings, it means sing afresh or sing with fervency, um, sing with a new passion. It's that sense of just singing, coming to God fresh, coming to God with fresh knowledge of his truth, 
and his spirit. You know, to burst, I, I think, you know, we need to be full. Um, you know, a, a river has no fear of bursting its banks if it's dry. Um, it's actually probably considered, you know, to a, an onlooker, you know, it's probably considered quite comfortable to manage, um, at least in the immediate term. You know, if you're on a hike and you saw a river dried up, you're probably like, oh, thank goodness, we don't have to cross a turbulent um, sort of river. But, you know, in the long run, as a river dries up, you see all of the life disappearing from um, <laughs> the world around it. And, you know, we've seen, I don't know if any of you have seen that um, photo, um, the satellite photo of the UK over the summer, and it's just burnt. <laughs> it's like yellow. Um, there's no water to it. Um, you know, a dry river, it feels, it feels safe. There's no torrent to navigate. It's considered comfortable. It brings no life and it isn't serving its purpose. And I think, like, I can be like that sometimes with God. Um, sometimes I'm like, I, I just want to dam up what God's doing in my life and to stop it overflowing. And I just think if I just stay comfortable, if I just stay dry, then there's no fear of him, you know, overflowing into my public life. But... I just think, you know, love and worship requires so much sacrifice. God said, greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends in John 15, 13. I think a life lived for worship, a, li- a life lived in that overflow costs something. Luke 9, 23 said to all, if anyone will come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Scripture requires us to be filled with the Spirit, with joy and peace, with faith, with truth. And it requires us to be empty of a few things as well. Our old self, malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy. To worship, we have to be full. We have to be full of the truth. We have to be full of Scripture and full of His Spirit. We have to give him permission to enter into our hearts and have his way. It's that whole idea of I stand at the door and knock. And he stands at the door of our hearts every day and we just have to let him in and see what he does. And go, Lord, I don't care about being comfortable. I care about what you want to do through me. I care about what you're doing there. Um, another, word, another name for these psalms, so Psalm 98 and a few others, is the enthronement psalms. Um, Christ as king. And that's almost, there's a few Psalms that fall into this category, but this is one of them. It's Christ as king over our lives. You know, if he's king, if he gives us that command, we have to do it. We have to give up those things that feel comfortable to us. And um, it made me think of this, this, you know, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Um, One of my favorites. I think that's going to come up. So, the kingdom of heaven is, is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And I just think, that's it. It's not like we give up as because we're not getting anything in return. We give everything up in order to go and receive what Christ has won for us, the fullness of it. He went and sold all he had. And again, following that one through, it said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Sold everything he had 
you know, over the last few weeks, um, we've been seeing Jesus throughout the Psalms. Um, and we forget that the Psalms, all this whole context that we're talking about is one of worship, is one of adoration, is one of us rediscovering our purpose. And this is our purpose. This is Christ. He is the miracle of the Father so that we can enjoy his presence, so that we can enjoy being with him. And he's worthy of it all for that. He's worthy of all of our worship. And he wants to give everything to us. I've just got a little um, parable, um, and then I'll finish. Um, so in a minute, the band um, can get up. Um, but this is an old Indian parable, and um, it, it goes something like this. So there's a peasant working a field, a rice paddy, and um, he's working alongside one of the roads um, within this field, and uh, a prince comes past with his long carriage and train of servants and all sorts of different amazing things. And um, the, king, the prince spots um, the peasant in the mud and he comes up to him and he says, give me some rice. <laughs> and of course, the peasant angrily reacts. And he's like, why do I have to give you the right? I'm not sure if he would say this or if this is an internal dialogue. It's kind of the thing I would say to myself after having a conversation with someone in private. But he says, why, why do I have to give you rice? You've got everything in the world, and you want my measly grains of rice. Anyway, thinking about it and trying not to get himself into trouble, he reaches into his bag and he, he takes out five measly grains of rice and he says, this is all I've managed to get today. Mm. Obviously lying. And gives it over to the prince and um, goes about his working day. And the prince, taking his five grains of rice, drives off. Anyway, later when the peasant comes back, to his house, he finds a bag of rice outside his door. And he goes and looks into it, and he's searching. It's just a bag of rice. And then he comes across five gold pieces within there. And he just says to himself, if only I had given it all. If only I had given it all to him. For every grain of rice, he had left that piece of gold. And I think, for, for me, I want to give it all to God. I want to give it all over, even when it feels like a massive sacrifice to him when he has so much. I want to give him my best. And I don't want to be like that peasant who gets to the end of their life and going, I could have given so much more and seen God do so much more. Can I have the band up? I don't know where you guys are. <laughs> 